Now she is, Captain. Isn't she a beauty? Yes, she is, Mr. Scott. Is she ready to go? Aisa. She's ready to go to the stars. This is the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. It's mission to seek out new ideas, find new games, and to boldly bring the awesome to your game. Mr. Scott, Warp 9. I Captain. And now, our host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Pixie. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast, a spinning out of control, somewhere in the depths of space, and realizing that your ship is actually a loner. <laughs> Mr. Scott, what's wrong with the ship? I don't know, Captain, but I'm trying to reverse the polarity right now. All the instructions came in a PDF. Somewhere packed away. <laughs> I left the owner's manual in my other pants. Yeah. yeah oh, gosh. <laughs> Instructions are translated from Zumwalese. Yeah, and it's it's designed for things who have eight arms. Uh, welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This week we are talking about starships. We've been spending a little bit of time talking about our FTL 2448 game, which was uh, one of the early games produced by TriTech Games. Uh, there's been a lot of summer sales on recently um, on the various game sites like Good Old Games, uh, Steam, and some of the other ones. And I saw a lot of space games, and I was checking them out, and I was just looking and saying, you know, there's all these different ships. And a lot of times the ships are part of what makes the game cool. So I started thinking about what kind of ships jazz me up and what kind of ships jazz up the other hosts? The steam sale just ended a couple days ago. Oh, the summer sale? Yeah, the summer The big sale. summer sale, yeah. Yeah, right. The no, one that, that was like a single week, that was it. Oh, the one that Habibi was beating over our heads for all that oh, day? No, yeah. no, I saw it first. <laughs> okay? No. I saw that before she did. Yeah. It, it let me buy finally buy my copy of Counter Strike Source so I can run uh, Gary's games without all the purple no 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 pattern stuff. <laughs> okay, so back to our topic. I started listing out uh, all the different kinds of vessels that I could think of, and these are very broad categories. Um, and saying, you know, what kind of things you know are cool about these things. And what, and what do the ships themselves inform the gameplay? It's like, if you have this kind of ship, does it mean you're going to go on these kinds of adventures? Or does it mean that even though you have this kind of ship, you're going to do whatever adventure you really want to do? So, you know, it's, it's kind of one of these chicken and egg kind of things. So, yeah. I, thought, so I wanted to, uh, so as, as we go over this, I want to make sure we do talk about all these different kinds of ships. Now, you might, you guys uh, might think of other kinds of, ships than what I listed, and that's fine. Please bring them up, as you do. So the first thing I came up with was capital ships. And 
if any of you guys have ever listened to Fear the Boot, you know that they love capital ships. And uh, their definition of capital ships are these gigantic weapon platforms in space that are used to provide primary offensive uh, or to form a defensive line against you know, you know, uh, enemies in a war. And uh, now this may not necessarily match what you think of as a capital ship because you know we've all seen Battlestar Galactica and we've seen um, uh, like the the spaceship Yamato and other things like that. And that's not the way they designed their uh, the Sphere of the Boot guys designed their ships. Uh, basically, what you have is a cylinder. And it's got weapons, big weapons arrayed on them. But they're arrayed all the way around them. And what happens is, is that they go and they start firing at their enemies. And as they do that, they slowly rotate the ship. And the reason is, is because they're being fired back against. And as the sh those parts of the ship where those, those weapons are take damage, they slowly rotate around the back side of the ship away from where they're firing. And that lets crews get out there and fix them and stuff like that. And meanwhile, brings up fresh, uh, fresh weapons with fresh magazines and other things to continue the fight. And so... Okay, there, there is something like that. It kind of reminds me of what you were talking about, just basically a long cylinder bristling with weapons. Uh-huh. From Robotech, I would say probably the best example would be the Zentradi flagship. Five miles, it looks like a giant space cucumber. I, I remember showing Josie and her mother the first episode, Booby Trap. Yes. Putting a face to what Bruce was talking about, that's all. I mean, right. And and, and some of the ships, you know, they are in a sense, you know, the way that the weaponry that they design on these giant chap capital ships force them to be in certain configurations, like... Uh, again, going into the whole Robotech kind of thing, uh, when they have those giant wave guns where literally big sections of the ship separate and inside is this big scintillating energy area that puts out a beam that's like 500 feet across, you know, and so the ship has to be long and... Uh, and and cucumber shaped as you said, so it can separate out and and send that beam out because that's the way they decide they wanted it to be. So I, I suppose they could still do that if they if, if it was round, but you know it, it does kind of give a little something to it when the entire ship basically turns into a giant gun. Yeah, I'm also considering uh, the Honor Harrington uh, ships, which are sort of built that way as well. Um, they basically, but they use missiles and they do uh, more or less uh, more traditional, you know, uh, uh, fuselage uh, of missiles at, at, at each other ship, along with other uh, weapons and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, but it is a, it is a standard tactic to rotate your ship, uh, especially with lasers, because you want to rotate. If you if you don't rotate your ship, that laser will burn a hole through the, through the your through your armor. As you rotate it, you'll at least keep the hot spot moving on your ship. At that at that point, okay. One design for a ship is uh, the the like uh, more realistic, you know, laser batteries and so forth. But the lasers aren't on the hull; they're inside the ship because you really don't need them on the hull. You need them someplace where because these are lasers the size of locomotives, you know, locomotive engines. They're huge, and they fire through a set of mirrors. 
So basically, they have ports all over the ship, little mirrors they can spin around, aim in different directions, and fire the lasers, and then shutter them up so they don't get burned by the counter-laser fire. Right, but that requires mirrors that are absolutely perfect. Eh, good enough. Okay, otherwise you lose too much energy, or they themselves would burn out. Yeah, I mean, yes, we're, talk- we're talking, yeah, laser mirrors and... Yeah, and they're sensitive to back to uh, backfire. That is, if the if the shutters are open and they hit your laser with their laser, that tends to burn out at least the optics at that point for that for that turret. But the laser itself can be kept safe at that point, so you're not worried too much about taking out the laser of that. You're just losing a port. You got a bunch more out there, and they're very right. Well, and that and that is one of the things I'm trying to bring up is the fact that capital ships have lots and lots and lots of weapons on them. Okay, so so it, it basically is, it creates a different situation. You have a very large resource for your adventure. Um, if when you if you play, if you're playing on a capital ship, you're either going to be somebody who's going to be on a weapon station or you're going to be part of the main probably part of the the main crew you know the the bridge crew or something like that because you know otherwise you 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 got to do something that's going to be interesting to yourself to to the game so if all you do is sit around waiting for someone to come into view so you could shoot them that's going to be a long two-hour play session yeah i mean i'm thinking i'm thinking of the uh, cnc on Star galactica yeah, they basically got right. There is really there is no bridge in the Galactico. They have a command and control center for for everything. And yeah, isn't that the same thing? No, it's not. Uh, if you get if you get into technically bridges where you steer the ship from, but they don't steer the ship from the from. Well, they do, but they it's it, 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 they, stop they, stop, John. Yeah, we, weeds <laughs> weeds. Get where are those stop weeds it, John. From? Yeah. Anyway, all right. But anyway, yeah. okay. I, no, all right. So you you just. You're saying that the bridge is normally a reference to where you steer the ship, but this is actually a fire control station, a tactical uh, room. Okay, and that's fine. You can do that. Yeah. Okay, and, and that's and that's fine too. You know, obviously, in the case of where you're, unless your your ship is moving a lot, and in the case of Battlestar Galactica, it rarely moved very much during a combat. Uh, you really don't need a bridge. You you need these guys hand, figuring out how they're going to send out their nukes, how they're going to uh, order their fleets of of uh, vipers and whatever else. So it becomes very tactical um, uh, rather than personal in a sense, because you know you're dealing with a bigger uh, array of, of of other ships that you're dealing with rather than you seeing your enemy face to face and having a you know, I don't know, uh, a brinkmanship kind of discussion. It's kind of, we're kind of past that point, but. No, I was going to, I was going to also mention those two. If you're looking at either a battleship or a battle cruiser. Now, the reason I bring the two up, they are different missions. A battle cruiser usually operates independently. Think, you know, the enterprise, it's a heavy cruiser. Uh, but if you're talking capital ships, that'd be a battle cruiser. So more like the um, mirror, the uh, mirror Earth version of the Enterprise is, is a battle cruiser. It's made it's it's a weapons platform, but it can move a lot faster than a battleship. Battleships are usually ships of the line that they 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 have more weaponry, 
but they don't move as fast as the battle cruiser. But battle cruisers are not as fast as say as a regular cruiser. But the battle cruiser makes up for it by being a cross between lots of weapons and uh, more armor than a uh, than a uh, other kinds of ships. So it's a they're all compromises when it comes down to it. So basically, a battle cruiser operates by itself. So that's more like the Enterprise. Uh, Battleship operates within a group of other ships, and it could be it could be a command of a bunch of smaller cruisers and so forth. And you know that's you know uh, another thing it could do. It's basically it's coordinating everything. And I can see all that. right, yeah. you're you're basically taking you know terms from World War II, John, and you're tr- you're trying to enforce it into the future. Hey, and hey, that's, because that's better than most most sci-fi shows, they use battle well, tactics from from the sh- sales and the from th- that's not my point. Ships. My point is is that you could you could have a, a ship that's the size of a small moon. Okay, and it could move quite readily. It just depends on what you, you know, what you have available to you. You know, what kind of power sources, what kind of propulsion systems you have. So, you know, we, we you got to be careful about that sort of thing. I just simply wanted to say by describing these capital ships to say is that this is the way they operate. That they have lots of weapons. That they support other ships, and they're usually the focus. Of the uh, of a military campaign. Yeah, the best way. Um, I'm gonna. My major thing for science fiction and ships. I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep bringing up Robotech because I'm running my second Robotech campaign now, and the best way to describe it would be the SDF one would be a capital ship that was in Macross. That it was, is definitely a capital ship. It I was, have looked at that and. Oh, there is nothing small. Yeah, it's like about a mile long, yeah. And it supported the rest of the fledgling Earth Armada with the ARMDs and the um, the legions and legions of Veritech fighters and all that. But the SDF-1 was the capital ship, as was the um, following superdimensional fortresses throughout the rest of the saga. And usually these kinds of ships are so okay. hardened that they can take a nuke and still function. Oh, yeah. Which is probably not true of any other listed thing we're going to talk about. <laughs> no, most ships, most other ships out there, you hit with a nuke, and it's basically, so, do you see a piece bigger than your thumb? But it's more <laughs> like, how much of the ship is left? Okay, can, can that support life? If you saw Space Above and Beyond, um, I forget what the name of the ship was. It was was it uh, Paul Revere or the Valley Forge or something Valley like that? For, it was, no, Valley Forge was from, uh, um, totally different. Uh, that's the um, the green the Greenpeace one. Oh, you know, one with Huey, Dewey, and Louie, the robots. You're talking about star, uh, Silent Running. Silent Running, yeah, that's right, because it was that was called the Valley Forge. Well, it was also it was also a ship that was in Starship Troopers. Yeah, that's true. No, that was the the Roger the Roger Young. But I think there was another one too. Yeah, and it was more than one. Right, but anyways, still the point is is that you know, here we have these humongous you know vessels, and only into like uh, it's only in like the last. I think the like the last um, episode or so that we actually ever see it fight. Um, 
up till then, they're always setting out their, their, their groups of small fighters because that's where this story is all about. It's all about those people, and it's just a place for them to come back. And, and, and that makes a certain amount of sense because most of these really large ships, as I said, they're so hardened. They have, uh, and you have a, I know you know the term for this, it's a, like a close-in weapon array that you literally can't get within a certain distance of it, or there's so many smaller guns firing in all directions that it literally creates a wall of lead or, or photons or something that you can't, a small vessel just can't even penetrate it. Yeah, yeah, there's a proper term for it. Uh, I can't remember what it is either right now. It's like a, a it's like a point defense or That's something like that. Point defenses, yes, point defenses. It, look at that. Could be getting that. Oh, so you mean guns that pop up when there is a target directly nearby the ship? Well, they they actually fire continuously uh, uh, around the ship so that anything that comes close to it is going to get hit and detonated. So okay. Yeah. Whether it's All a right. ship or a bomb or whatever else it might be, because people could really, you know, could could let go mines and all kinds of things, and these things do it. So the only real defense against it, if you're a small ship, is to somehow get inside of that range and go and go right next to the ship, so you can't be hit. You're, uh, you know, you're within the angle of of attack that they could do. It's the it's the idea that they used when they went against the Death Star was that they were so low that the those towers couldn't take them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the thing is and was it Galactica they uh, they had the something similar to they had the 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 uh they were they were uh, coil guns firing off actual rounds uh filling the air. But they all all those they all were semi-autonomous. There wasn't actually a person behind them. They were actually running off of radar targets and firing at them like phalanx does on the modern uh, modern ships, the phalanx defense system. But yeah, trouble is going against computer controlled uh, things like that. They usually hit what they aim at. <laughs> well, it's still the point is is that to create a uh, essentially a wall of lead so that anything that tries to get in there, you don't have you can you can you don't have enough people to to unless this truly is ginormous. You don't have enough people to basically fire those guns. They just fire automatically. You know, it, it, at, at, at a certain repetition and. Um, pattern or whatever so that you have a pretty good chance that nothing's going to get through that's going to hurt the ship unless it's really really lucky bring it back to the game uh the ship that comes closest to a capital ship in in game is the guam are you talking about ftl 2448 yes in ftl 2448 yeah and it's the one that comes closest it's uh a thousand ninety feet long, uh, three large engines, and it's basically it's used both by ISCO and by other ships. It also doubles as a unit, so it's a multi-purpose ship. Um, the next size down is the Comanche, which is more of a cruiser than anything else. So it's actually the- okay. I don't have any idea how big these ships are. You you haven't described them. Comanche is six hundred and ten feet long, so a uh, football field size of football field. That would be. Uh- that would be twice the size of a football field. Uh, 610, 600 feet is, you're right, it's two foot, two football fields. Thank you. Um, it has a crew of, it's not a big crew, on a crew of 59. And it tells you, you know, hey, uh, the Guam is 1,000 feet long and has a crew of 441. So a lot more things it does. Uh, I would say it would be more of a command control ship than anything else. Uh, if I'm looking... 
And if you have a ship that big, that creates a lot of, of possibility for interaction between NPCs and PCs. It's not just the PCs interacting with each other, you know, for months at a time. But, but speaking of interacting with just each other for months at a time, we also have the large deep space exploration vessels. And the one I always think of when I think of that is is the um, and again I don't I should look should have looked this up but the one that shows up in Babylon Five in the pilot or near the pilot where it's just it comes out of the uh, uh, of, of the jump gate and just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. <laughs> it's the one that I think it had Sheridan's girlfriend on board. Yes, yeah, it's it's just and it, and. She was going to go back on it too, you know. So this, I mean, this thing is a big long spear, is what it is, and it's got engines on one end, and it's got like uh, um, uh, antenna rays or things like that on the other end, and then just random other stuff down the length of it. And that's uh, uh, they never explained why it was the way it was. It just looked cool. So we all said, "Well, it's, I'm sure there's a good reason for it." Well, with Babylon Five. It was based a lot on hard science fiction. So I am sure they probably made that that way for a reason. You could probably find some scientific-based idea for how and why the ship was, why it was. Because mm-hmm. Harlan Ellis was the scientific consultant for that show. Uh, but no, I'm also thinking of the, uh, of, of the ship that was in... Uh, going back in time, because a lot of folks are going, Babylon, what? But even going farther back in time, Space 1999, they had an episode where a deep space exploration vessel showed up. And I can't remember its name. Uh, but you could tell the, F, the, it was designed for, it was designed to go out, I think, uh, out into interstellar space and come back. And it came back. They actually, no, they ran into it on its, on its journey. And it was, of course, bad things happened. You mean exciting things happened? Yeah. Well, yeah. They could be bad. They could be good. Yeah. Bad things for the for the for the for the char- for the characters. Good things for the for the, for the people watching the show. Uh, <laughs> but it was designed. Uh, what was it? It was. Oh, there's a picture. The Santorini space probe. There was it. Oh, I remember why why they had a problem because when they turned on that space drive, it killed people. <laughs> okay, that's a problem. Yeah. Well. You know, I mean, if you're space dry, I mean, that, that, that could fall under a lot of different things here. I mean, you know, almost all space drives produce an awful lot of energy, and it's not good to be standing right behind it. Yeah, in this case, you could be standing in front of it and it'd kill you. Uh. <laughs> well, that was one of the things that I thought about when I saw this really, really long thing, and I thought, well, maybe their space drive, okay, produces a lot of energy signals and things like that, and it actually causes problems with the sensor array. So therefore, by putting it so far away from the engines, you might actually get a cleaner signal, a cleaner, a re- or you might be able to see further and stuff like okay. that. And so even if you shut your engines down, there might be enough residual radiation co- peeing off of things that it would cause noise. And you want to reduce that to as much as possible. And that would be a good reason to have a big, long spear. You know. Another good um, example, and it wasn't really that on, in that long for the movie. If you remember the Lost in Space movie that came out with William Hurt, Matt LeBlanc, and Gary uh-huh. Oldman, the Pegasus, the ship that went out later to look for the Jupiter 2, 
that was a very long exploration vehicle. Mm-hmm. That would be another good example for that type of larger deep, sp- deep space exploratory spacecraft. Right. And it was also, really good because it, it had areas of the ship that were obviously designed to support a crew for many, many years. Yeah, you know, I think there was a high and, area and like a rainforest in there and everything. Right, yeah, it, right. Filled with, with killer spiders, yes. Well, I don't think that would have been the, on the standard equipment list there. <laughs> I think that was an added feature. <laughs> yeah. I'm also looking up the Babylon. It's the Explorer class. It's six kilometers long. And it basically has rotational sections. Just it basically has a mini- miniature Babylon Five on it, uh, and it's basically as big as it is because, it, like you said, it's designed to go out there and not come back home for a while. It also has to be able to generate its own uh, ju- jump, um, um, uh, hi- uh, uh, not jump, ga- yeah, jump gates to the hyperspace. So those are usually big ships. Only the big, massive capital ships can do that. Uh, generate the the uh, the uh, the the hole back into hyperspace. Yeah, unless unless you've got higher tech. Yeah, unless you unless you unless you Minbari or some Nibari or some of that. Yeah, or Shadow or, or Shadow or just anyone else but human. Yeah, uh. <laughs> any anybody who's at the human level or the FTL twenty four forty eight level of technology. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. But yeah, it's the exploration ships. Yeah, and and there's if you and uh, yeah, exploration ships got to be designed for long term travel. I mean, you basically uh, like in games FTL, you're going to a world. Now, here's the thing about exploring in in nowadays because we know that you can look at the star system before you ever get there. You can find all the planets and know which ones has atmospheres and which ones have oxygen. Long before you get a ship there, because you can use telescopes and other things to view it, and but you still can't get the up close and personal data, and that's what exploration ships need to do. They need to go there and get that up close and personal information, like what's on the surface of the planet. We can't really tell. Yeah. Well, how far how far out can we actually get that information? Uh let's see. Right now, they've determined that a uh, actually it was in the it was in the news. Uh, let's see. They actually will determine a star. It has a planet with with an oxygen atmosphere. What was it? Uh, exoplanet. Let me look it up real quick. Exo. So I won't be. Oh, wasn't it. it was that one that was like the super Earth that was much by a, a factor of like two or three, but it was pretty much like Earth. Yeah, I remember reading something about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was something that you recently discovered. Again, and- how far away? I did. I missed if you said it. Yeah, I'm looking. Uh, with actually, I think it had water in the atmosphere. Okay. Well, here I'm, I'm just saying though, is that you know, if you if you can see things, let's say up to 40 light years away or 50 light years away, then again, the deep space vessels would be for going further than that because you know, I mean, you, so that's and and more, more importantly, I see deep space exploration vessels as ones where you're literally designed to live on it. For an extended period of time. Uh, well, in that uh, case, then the Enterprise D would be considered that because, yes, first of all, the Galaxy class for Star Trek was much larger than the Constitution class, and they had their families on, and it was meant to be a home away from home mm-hmm. for Starfleet officers and their families. So, I would say the Enterprise D would qualify for number two, the long-range deep space exploratory vessel. 
Right. Well, it was a five-year mission after all, though they did seem to come yep. back a lot to star to star bases and such. But yeah, oh yeah, went to a lot of places nearby. Yeah, uh, I'm not finding the distance on how far it is. It's it's got yeah. Uh, I, that's you can look at you can look it up yourself. Now, one of the reasons that they had a big long spaceship uh, was in uh, was was described in the. Um, um, the Lensman series uh, by E.E. E. Doc Smith, and in that uh, in that particular series, they had inertialess drives and inertialess spaceships, and so because of that, as you got closer to the speed of light, you didn't gain mass. You didn't have any mass at all as far as the outside world was concerned. That's what the inertialist drive gave you. So these people were able to travel many, many times the speed of light. They sort of totally ignored the whole issue about, you know, um, time dilation and stuff like that because they didn't gain the mass part. They said, well, we don't have to worry about anything. So from the standpoint of the of, the, of the stories, the drive took care of the, the whole time dilation thing. It didn't happen, and they didn't have any mass. So as they went forward uh, through space, um, they didn't slow down. They could go many, many times the speed of light. And what happened was they were going so fast that the Ra very thin incidence of interstellar hydrogen and things like that was enough to actually act like wind, and it was slowing the ship down. And so they started designing ships to be very thin needle-like shapes so they could go even faster than before. And these would be used for, like, the really fast couriers or um, your, like, very fast response-type vessels. They actually made them uh, not like a long spear, but they made them teardrop-shaped, you know, so that the back end of it was much bigger than the front end of it. But still, it still follows the same concept. So if you had a vessel that could go that fast and was still interacting with the outs, you know, the, the molecules or whatever that's out in space, it might actually run into that kind of so-called wind resistance you know, and and to get the most out of its drive, it might have to be made that direct that in that fashion. Yeah, basically, that's interesting enough. That's the problem that the uh, the Elu get the name pronounced correctly, the Elu Crumpy warp drive, the one that the NASA has been working on. I can't get Elu. I can't get the name right. It's the warp drive that NASA's work that NASA's researching. It actually would leave behind a a, a trail behind itself because it would leave off what's called Cherkinov radiation. It would leave this bright blue trail behind itself as it traveled faster in light through normal space, and they got all these particles being bumped around by the uh, by the warp bubble going past them. And I imagine these things, these ships and lensmen, if 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 uh, if Doc Smith knew about it, would leave behind blue trails as they traveled through space, you know, superluminal you know, at superluminal speeds. Um, they didn't, but maybe they should have. Okay. <laughs> well, they went they went faster in light because they went fast, which is the other problem. But you know, <laughs> they went faster in light because they didn't have the problem of gaining mass as they got closer to the speed of light. That was the whole point. And uh, and it was really and, and, and of course it was really cool because as soon as they shut the drive off they stopped instantly, there was no forward momentum no nothing bam they were done. Friends don't friends don't let friends fly inertial ships. <laughs> I mean, if you say so, John. Yeah, it breaks so many laws of physics. So what? You know, John. Um, a, 
computers uh, you know would have uh, would appear to break the laws of physics if it was looked at by somebody from the 1900s you know as as the saying goes he says they just found a way around it <laughs> anywho but we're okay talking, so uh, john what's laws of physics among friends yeah right now, of course, you know, uh, uh, like they don't have to all be spheres or whatever like that. They could be like a huge globe. You know, you could build a deep space vessel because you know you don't actually run usually run into a lot of problems with like as I mentioned that that space resistance. So you could you might want your ship to be a big globe because it's safer, it holds heat in better, it's more energy conservative. Uh, it's probably stronger if it's hit, impacted by things. So you know, there's nothing wrong with a uh, deep space exploration vessel that's in a in the shape of a globe too. You know, and and you can also spin it. You know, so that you get gravity, uh, varying levels of gravity in one area versus another, depending upon the axis that you're spinning it on. Yeah, H. Beam Piper loved them for his ser- for his series. Uh, the you know he used them a lot and. Uh, Though in this case, he didn't actually have, uh, he didn't spin them. He, he had uh, artificial gravity generation, but in the center, in, in the center of the ship. So basically you're, wa- you know, you're walking on the different layers and it was all like walking on, uh, on, on the inside of an onion peel. So, yeah, so you didn't walk on the outside of hell. You walk on the inside and everything curved around in front of you. But, you know, that's. Yeah. Well. But the advantage of what I just talked about is the fact that that, that the further you are away from the, the the axis of spin, the more gravity it seems that you have. Okay, so you could have uh, in a game like FTL with so many different aliens who grew up in so many different worlds with different levels of gravity, you could basically say, okay, well, this you know the forward section, you know, uh, that's like half the distance away from the axis. That's for where you're going to put your light, you know, uh, your light planet dwellers, and then the very center of it is where you're going to put your Jupiter folk. Because that it has two to three gravities going there, and and so you get that that advantage to do. And of course, you have a lot of of real estate on the inside of the ship because it is uh, devised like a sphere. Now it could not be a sphere. Um, other ones they they just have discs. Some of them even have rotating pods, uh, which is what they did in uh, 2010. Uh, where they just basically the sh- the main ship was 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 long and and blocky and they had these two uh pods on either side that just lo- rotated around the ship and they uh and and they had earth normal gravity at the ends of those pods where the people basically lived and worked and everyone bites their tongue who watches it says but you have the floors running along the walls and not Never mind. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Never mind, John. <laughs> it's a movie. Okay. They don't. They they don't have the same amount of um, of rigor that usually we have in games or we have in books. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, the thing about it, of course, in FTL, uh, the 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 phase drive provides gravity. So if you bring so if you bring it up, if you basically put it into what's called idle mode, it will you create a gravity field and then you basically choose which way it points. And everyone chooses to make it point in a certain direction. I uh, don't think you can change the intensity though um, you know, at different levels. I think it's always whatever you, if you pick two G's, it's two G's for the entire ship. You pick one G, it's one G for the entire ship. So I know what you're talking about, John, but they also had gravity plates that allowed you to 
basically put point gravity wherever you wanted it to on the ships. Okay, that was that's probably listening to shipbuilder then. Well, maybe I don't know. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was the one who suggested to Richard that he have the phase drive provide gravity because then you could put a plane of gravity right down to the center of the ship, and so everybody would have gravity. And he said yes, and that and that would uh, and the grav that would explain why the the engines go out of tune, the phase drive goes out of tune because if you have all these gravity plates and they're changing the gravity, it actually causes interference with that, and that feeds back and causes the the phase drive edges to go out of tune. So the best way to keep your engine in tune is just let it provide that gravity plane and just work off of that. So and I was like, I was like, well, you're welcome, Richard. <laughs> so, but they had both. So uh, in in the FTL game. So and and of course, and you know, John, and uh, most of our listeners know that gravity plates are. You know, we're talking ultra tech here. We're talking tech that's ridiculously high. Fantasy. It's fan. It's not. It's not fantasy level, but it's definitely would appear to be magic. The principles they would be operating on would appear to be magic. And there are some races that are in the FTL game and other games who are so advanced that they can say, here you go, and this is what they sell you. They basically sell you gravity plates because you can't possibly make them for yourselves you know, because the tech is so unbelievably high. He says, yeah, take it, stick a couple of double A's in, it's good for a year. <laughs> it's like, you're like, what? That can't be true. So, but anyways, but it is. And I'll save my rant on gravity generation for some someplace else. Anyway. Well, you've you've already done it, actually. go. Uh, uh, people should listen to one of our earlier podcasts on that. I think we talked about it in uh, Easy Space or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, no, that was even the full the full rant. Don't worry about that. It was just a partial rant. <laughs> okay, so moving on to, to the next one on my list. Uh, let's actually go to number four because we're also still talking about large, uh, basically, vessels. And I said large cargo or colony ships with or without a large crew. So, and, and this is the kind of ship that is actually uh, that's in the game as the default ship that the players get. Uh, because in the, in the listed uh, side, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the the uh, the sidebars they have a store you know they use uh, a particular crew as a um, an illustrative type text and they have this gigantic um, colony ship that was basically mothballed and and brought out and, and, and is barely operating and handed to the players saying here you go now you do something with it and but it was a uh, it was designed to be a colony ship but it could also have been a really large cargo ship and colony ships and uh, I we disagreed on this the last time we talked about this John but I said that a colony ship is one that you design to take everything that you need for an extended period of time because you're going to go out somewhere and you're going to have to basically build your colony off of what's on your ship you're not going to have what you need already there though we know that it's possible to send ships ahead and start building you know fuel builders or stuff like that. I think the big disagreement we had was that you had them taking the ship apart and using it. And I'm going, the ship can carry everything on it that they can then uh, drop down. Because basically because the ships in in game are not designed to be taken apart. They were basically designed to deliver and then come back. 
Deliver and come back. Right, because th this is actually a little bit more advanced than what I was originally talking about. In FTL 20, at 2448, they basically have ships that are traveling around, and, and, and they're basically, even though they're a colony ship, they're really more of a cargo ship. Their, their cargo just happens to be colonists. So, yeah, they don't want to take their ship apart. But I, what I was saying is if you went to a planet and you and you, the ship was built for you to go to the planet and when you got there, you know, your most ready source of, of metals and things like that are going to be your ship. So, you know, if you you don't need a big ginormous ship anymore. So by taking it apart and taking it down with you to the basically stripping your ship and taking it down to you to the planet, it gives you more resources uh, to tide you over until you get your minds up and operating to get those kind of resources off of the planet. That was all I was saying. But, you know, if you're if, if the whole idea is for you to go and drop these people off and go off to your next job, obviously you don't want to take your ship apart. Yeah. Or, or if the investment is such that because the earlier ships like the Homesteader and the HL Colonizer, I would imagine the investment in these ships was such that now you're not taking them apart. You're bringing them back because we want to use them for someplace else because we only built like 10, like the Homesteader, they only built 36. They're bringing them all back because this is the time period where the phase drives were. This is back. They were built in 2068. And this is the time where one in four ships just did not come back. So, yeah, you're bringing the homesteader back. You're bringing the colonizer back, you know, because because uh, we lost the other one. You know, we lost, we, you know, the 36, maybe what? One in four? That'd be what? They lost eight? No, not eight. Um, nine. 36 that lost nine of them. They lost, they lost nine of them. Yeah, they're not going to take a chance of losing this one. Yeah, the round trip time was a lot shorter than the time it would take to actually construct another one of these ships. If it costs you uh, $100 million, let's say, to fly the ship out to a planet, drop off the colonists and come back, and it costs you a billion credits to make one, obviously you want to bring it back. Yeah, so a lot of these earlier ships were, res were, were round trippers, even though the round trip probably took a more than a year. Uh, for a lot of the near nearby stars, but still, and, but yeah, looking at looking in the in the more recent ships like the Moscow, the ugliest dang thing ever built. It has a crew of eleven, but it can carry twenty five thousand cargo units. Good lord! <laughs> yeah, and those cargo and and see that's that's where you have to start thinking about what kind of a colony ship you're going to have. Because if the idea is to keep the colonists awake during all this this time period, then uh, you need to have like a lot of living space. And so a lot of the ship is actually going to be living space. If you're taking them, freezing them, and then defrosting them once you get there, then you don't need hardly any living space at all. You just need lots and lots of backup generators to make sure these guys stay cold. Yeah, and looking at the at the crew li passenger listing, it has it has the forty three nine hundred ninety nine, so forty three not frozen, nine hundred ninety nine in low berths or in or in the or hibernation chambers of some sort, uh, so which kind of makes sense. That way you can carry a lot of coloni colonists, but you have the 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 colony the colony organizers the colony administrators the people who go down first and set things up they're awake and they're ready to go and do things. Yeah. Well, also, you have another type of colony ship, but I mean, this one would have to be huge. 
the multi-generational ones. The ones where you're raising families and your entire world is that ship. It may t- and this is for slower than light travel. This would be the one where you know this trip will take probably decades, if not more. So, yeah, you'll never see your destination. You start off in that ship, you're going to die on that ship. It's your yeah. great-grandchildren may be the ones that, you know, four generations, five generations later are the ones that are going to set up, they're going to set the foot on the planet that you headed out to. Now, Trav, you say that. I will point you to Ken McLeod's Learning the World, where it has a generation ship, yet the, the, the ship's crew were the same people who launched it 200 years earlier. Maybe because it's, it's one of these super, it, the, basically the lifespan is extended to the point where the, the, the one of the main folk, one of the main, uh, focal, focus characters in the story is functionally immortal. <laughs> well, then that's not really a multi-generate, well, unless that's he's, a, you know, popping out project left, right, and center, you know. Carrying colonists in the form of, 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 uh, embryos. So yeah, it, it basically decant them and you know and and put them into the uh, into the uh, into the artificial wombs and boom and then run through our, basically had to wake them up a good eighteen years before they got there. So you have all the problems of a generational ship uh, at that point because you have to have all these kids woken up and then educated and uh, taught and all that stuff. Yeah, and and that is, that is such a bad idea. Okay, having raised. A single child, I can tell you that decanting a thousand children, okay, and trying to raise them up to be something other than a angry mass okay, is going to be some pretty tough work, okay? And, and, and just know I respect you. I consider you a dear friend, you and Bruce both. But I'm going to say this, John, spoken like a true non-parent. <laughs> Kim McLeod, I think, is also single, too. <laughs> but uh but but then again uh spoilers that actually is a plot point in the in the novel uh. <laughs> but 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 you bring up a good thing which is that the reason why a lot of why you'd want in some cases to have these uh ships carry a large crew of passengers interacting in society is because uh, sometimes you don't actually have the luxury of of picking people from the donor population who have the skills that you need. Okay, I mean, sometimes they might have a couple of skills that you need, but they might not have all of them, and they might not have enough of them to have all the skills that you need. And so you put them on the ship, and they have one year, five years, ten years, whatever it might be, to learn those skills from the people who actually know how to do it. And that was kind of the premise that was in um, Variable Star by uh, uh, the the last novel for Heinlein that was actually written by um, Spider Robinson. They had a spaceship where they they needed people to get on to, to join up for the spaceship, but it, toward the end, the, the the early ones who wanted on the spaceship, of course, they were the the Ubers. The, you know, they were they were like the the preppers. They knew, oh yeah, drop me on the middle of an alien space uh, world and I'll make a living. Okay, but you don't you can't 
take a, you know, you can't basically create a colony like that. So they had a lot of other people that were just willing to do it. They wanted a new life. They wanted to break or something. They, you know, they had a reason to go. They could be criminals. They need, you know, this was their parole. The point was, is that they didn't necessarily have the skills, especially since they were coming out of a very high tech, you know, futuristic society where, you know, food came in a tray, you know, you didn't grow this stuff, you know, somebody grew it maybe in a vat somewhere, but didn't like, there was no sticking stuff in the ground and pouring a watering can over it. That, that was like something you saw in an old movie. So they had to learn how to do that sort of thing. And so they needed the time to train the people how to do all these different jobs and to create enough redundancy amongst the skill set so that when they did land there, if something bad happened like, I don't know, a, a, a solar storm or a plague or a bunch of uh, you know, uh, you know carnivorous frogs – ate a bunch of their colonists, they didn't suddenly have you know the most some of their most important jobs empty now because no the those there was only one or two people who could actually do those jobs. So that's one reason why you have colony ships that are fully populated and everyone's up and walking around. Yeah. And uh, now with FTL it's it's uh like the, the current colony ships, the um oh I was looking at them um, the, basically it's not the, it's the, what's it called? There it is. It's the, uh, Centaurus. It can carry 155 awake and 3,400 in, in, in hibernation. That's the colony ship that carries enough people there, two trips, and you have a, a minimum number of people for a stable genetic base at that point. Well, yeah, that's the thing you, you need to have, if you're setting up a colony, what no matter who you have, whether it's like okay, the entire crew is nothing but scientists and engineers, and you know, people with a broad technical base, or if you have, like Bruce said, originally they don't have the skills, and you teach them. Either way, you still need that broad genetic base if you want that colony to prosper, not only financially but genetically where you're not having any deformities or defects or whatnot yeah you need a decent population and a lot of times for colony ships cryonics was the best bet to transport the maximum number of people that you could and have and cover you know but all those bases that was the term i'm trying to yeah, and I'm looking at the uh, at the uh, Frontier 2448 uh, campaign setting because it talks about the three different kinds of uh, colonizing corps, uh, corporations. There's the poor, the average, and the outstanding. Uh, the outstanding are the ones you want to get with. Uh, they're the ones that will te- you'll be trained before you even leave Earth or Fox Cheer or wherever. Uh, you'll be trained and everything you need to know for the job you're going to do in that colony. And then you get in the ship, and then you go and 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 hyper and hibernation is optional at that point. Then there's the average ones. They they'll they'll give you some education, some skills. You'll probably take some you know community community college courses, and you know that's what they'll pay for. And then yeah, off you go. And then there's poor. Yeah, they're they actually kind of modeled that in miniature um, in the book Ark. Um, 
by um, Stephen. I can't remember his last name. Uh, it was the it was the sequel to the book Flood, where a flood covers the slowly covers the entire planet, uh, and so they had this they had to devise a ship to take us a, a crew of a people to another world uh, to colonize because they were pretty much afraid that it was a good chance that. Uh, that a the culture of Earth would be destroyed, and b even all the humans might die because of this. Um, and so, what? Ha- but what happened was is that uh, they they originally created this you know stellar crew. They were all super smart experts and all these different things. You know, they were trained from eight years old up to to uh, it was like a fifteen year long process. Um, and they were supposed to be the, and that was the crew, going to be the crew for the ship and the colonists and everything, right? So, but as they got closer to the uh, the launch date, and the water kept getting higher and higher, uh, the guards said, "Well, we'll stay here." I mean, who were protecting the ship and the and the and the place where all this was being built said, "We will stay here and protect you, but you've got to make sure that our kids." are safe. So they've got to go on your ship. So then they had to go and take some of the crew that was supposed to be on the ship and say, sorry, Charlie, you can't actually leave. You can't actually be on the crew. And they had to bring in these, you know, second stringers. Okay. And they had to, and and, and then they had to double down. We got it. Now we got it. We got like five years to train these people. What we were expecting them to need 15 years to know and so they're they're trying like crazy to to take these kids and you know who are now in their early teens and rather angry at everybody uh, to, as teens tend to be you know force them to learn how to run this starship that they're building uh, and then when it comes launch date and 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 the waters are lapping about a mile away and everybody who's still alive who's been running ahead of the water is like, we've got to get on that ship. And at the last minute, like a bunch of people managed to jump onto the ship. And some of the people don't actually even manage to get through the crowds and the fighting to get on the ship. You're supposed to get there. And then you've got those last also, you know, they're literally the, what you call the poor. They're the people who are clueless. They're just on the ship. They get to live. They're happy. And the rest of the yeah. crew are going, what the heck are we going to do with you? And they're like, well, look, man, we don't know how to do anything, and we don't plan on learning. We're just going to we're just going to ride up to the to till you get us to the to the next planet, and we'll just see what happens then. But I don't see a reason why we should spend any time doing that. I've got you know, um, I, I got some you know, uh, modern combat, some VR to 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 deal with for the next five years or fifteen years or however long this this. This vessel's going to be. You're not my captain. I'm on the ship. What do you do? Throw me off? I, I'd like to see you try. So <laughs> you have that. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, the the, the Centaurus uh, has a fastest phase speed of two days per light year. So at the very worst, you're going to spend a month or two months or so, like in space. So yeah, th- this this was this was years in this book. Getting there, yeah. I do like the description for qualification for a poor, uh, for a poor recruit for the um, poor, poor quality colonization corp corporation. If you're breathing, you're heading for you are heading for the stars. <laughs> expect, expect to be frozen in a cheap crowd tube for the duration of the slow trip to your new home, and your life savings to vanish. So they're using a ship that's probably at least 
50 years out of date to move you. So good luck getting there. <laughs> that, that was also kind of the idea that was in the series um, Old Man's War because they they would establish a colony on another star and they would be colonists and they would go to what they called the third world countries and they would just basically get bunches of warm bodies to put on ships and send over to the colony. Now, because these people were in third world countries, they did actually have the advantage that they were probably agriculturally oriented. And yeah. they were used to they were used to living without high tech and a big infrastructure and all those things. They were basically used to living closer to the land, you know, than let's say somebody from the first world countries. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to. Also because those people were perfectly happy to leave Earth and go to another planet because life could was quite possibly better on those planets than it was yeah. on Earth for them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, colonization is always going to require a lot of work. Uh, in, in the in, depending on if you're playing FTL, you actually have several years to play with. If you, like I'm currently on the uh, forums, I, I was starting a little thread on let's colonize Frenner too, and going and basically using the the system in the book to come up with all the background events, all the things that happen, and how the colony's doing going on. I, I do want to do the next. To uh, next forty years, just to get to a point where we see how if it gets if it really becomes stable or if things really go to heck in a handbasket for the colony at that point. But yeah, those are the cases where it takes two at the minimum of two years for a ship to do a round trip to the to the colony. I was gonna say I remember in the Prime Directive D twenty modern books because a few months ago I wrapped up my one Star Trek Pathfinder campaign, and they brought in the rules for. The, Federis that, the Federation Colonization Bureau and the steps you had to go through to make a colony world. And I mean, it was very extensive what you needed to do, what you needed to have, you know, the time and then setting up and then, okay, then you got to go through the review board. Okay, we've done this, this and this. Are we worthy of being a colony world? It was out of maybe a hundred page book, it was like three or four pages of just the four or five steps of not only what you need to do, just all the bureaucracy needed because this was a major funding thing. Cause you had to get the ship. You had to get all the supplies. You had to, if you had livestock, you had to have livestock on the ship. You had to have all your seed for growing your crops and, you know, all the various other things that you had. It was it's a major financial undertaking. I mean, the convention would be it's a major financial undertaking to set up a colony somewhere. Either the government or the corporation or the university doing it. There's a lot that had to be gone through from what I was reading in the game. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yeah, it just everything that we've been talking about here with the with with colony ships, even the poor, the one the, the ones that John talked about, if you're breathing, you're in, that's st you still have to get the ship. You still have to get supplies. You have to get the cryotech, which is not cheap. With all the backup generators, everything to make sure that your your subjects survive the trip. All of that, it's massively expensive. 
So, yeah, I, I just read that in Prime Directive D20 Modern. Just It was a lot of work to set up a colony. Yeah, and with a fly-by-night operation, you're not absolutely guaranteed that the atmosphere is 100% breathable and the life forms are 100% compatible. You're more likely, oh, yeah, well, if you eat this stuff, you'll need to sit in the bathroom for three hours every day afterwards. Uh, stuff like that. And, you know, and you'll, get, you'll get minor amounts of heavy mellow poisonings from breathing the atmosphere. Nothing to worry about. Your kids will just be ignorant when you get born. Uh, yeah. You know, things like that. You know, it basically, what it sounds like these, these, these fly-by-night operations, they're just corporations trying to get a claim on a world, and the only way they can do it is with a colony. And they don't even care if the colony survives. They just need that claim. You need to last at least 20 years or whatever the, the minimum period is, and it's their world. They've homesteaded it. We own it now. So the kind of adventures we're talking about here, if you're dealing with a colony ship, is that either A, you're the crew, and you're having to deal with either the uh, – uh, the tech, the engineering technical aspects of keeping this whole thing going while you spend the two years getting to wherever you're trying to go, um, uh, or you're dealing with the passengers who will be vying with each other for dominance and resources and other things that might be available on the ship. Possibly some dissonance, possibly, as you were mentioning, might be some counter spies from other corporations who want to make sure that the colony fails. So there's that going on. Or you could be, in fact, the colonists or the spies or whatever, trying to either deal with the fact that you're, you know, things are not as, as they were promised in the brochure or it's taking a lot longer to get there than you realize and you're not too happy about it or there's all kinds of things going on, uh, you know, complex social interactions for you to get involved in. And, and that basically takes it, – it's, it's a big, long soap opera until you finally get to the planet, and at which point then you get to change your campaign entirely because now we're dealing with actually living in a completely different environment and all that goes along with that. So – just you know the 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 kindness of deep space vessel you have the way they do it is going to inform your play or you know or I should should say the way you want to play is going to inform the way the uh, uh, the kind of ship you're going to be on and how you're going to get there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, with the uh, the, with the outstanding counties, you're on a Chi uh, freighter which has uh, passengers nine hundred ninety uh, awake passengers. 18,000 sleeping passengers and it carries 25,000 cargo units. You look at that thing you're going, okay, this is this is people with money. We're going to some place that's going to be habitable or at least we'll be living in pre-built domes. We're ready to go. The, this one will be more of the, if your crew, I don't, I don't think your crew would be fun for this one, but definitely you're one of the 999 who are awake. And now you got to deal with all the politics during the trip out and then the politics of setting the colony up at that point. Um, conversely, you're, if you're from a fly by night, you're flying something like a Hunley and yeah, yucky. You're the crew. I'd say that one being the crew would be more fun to play because you're dealing with a fly by night operation 
and you were hired to fly the ship. This is not your ship. This is someone else's ship. And you may decide somewhere along the line of, you know, what? these people are being screwed. Let's screw the company. This is our ship now. And fun shells shoot ensue at that point uh, as you go along. You're talking about uh, uh, a revolution then. Or at least, you know, stealing a ship from a, from a fly-by-night company that's already stole all the money from the passengers aboard. You know, you know, tit for tat. Of course, that's when you find out, oh, and the phase drives are about, oh, on their last legs. Yinger is going, I don't know if we can even get back. <laughs> you know, and it becomes a, a game of survival for you and the colonists at that point to get the ship back up and running again and hope like heck you have at least one usable shuttle so you can get people back on the ship. So that could be a game of survival at that point. Or maybe you and the crew end up on that colony world because after you have your little revolution, the ship and, and everything is so damaged that it, does, it actually can't make the journey back. It can only make the journey there, barely. So now you have all these antagonisms between the, 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 the original crew and the, the colonists, you know, because of this altercation that's happened, then, you know, you got to work it out from there, you know, and it does, is, is the hatchet ever really buried or do the, does the crew and the colonists form separate colonies on the same world? I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can go with that. And that sounds like a pretty good premise where we have a, we have an uprising and it ends up saying we're, we're doing this anyways, but now we're doing it with only half a ship. Thanks guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, which exp- you know, I'm looking for any funny names for colonies out there. Um, well, there's "We Made It" that was in the uh, Niven universe. That's true. <laughs> thanks to a thanks to a bat to a badly des- uh, to a, a a very badly programmed probe that said, "Look, there is a habitable place on this on this Venus-like world." <laughs> It's it's the top of a it's the top of a of a, a stink volcano that eroded away a big plateau, and that's where they get to live. And everything else is well Venus, right? This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait, you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.